Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. This is part two of my interview with Dr. Charlie Camosi, Associate Professor of Theological and Social Ethics at Fordham University. In part one, Charlie discussed his pro-life work as well as the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic on the New York City metropolitan area. In this interview, he discusses how the pandemic has affected other social and pro-life related issues, including efforts to expand assisted suicide, the impact of the throwaway culture, and how we Americans have responded or not responded to the needs of our elderly brothers and sisters, particularly those with dementia. Welcome to part two of our interview with Professor Charlie Camosi. Charlie, I'd like to start our second interview talking about assisted suicide. So as, as you and, and probably most listeners are very well aware of, efforts to legalize assisted suicide continue throughout the United States. And I understand that you testified against the most recent attempt to legalize it in Connecticut. So I was wondering, can you tell us about... Uh, about your test, about your testimony, and uh, what's the status of assisted suicide in the nutmeg state? Well, um, normally I wouldn't even be available really for such testimony, but I guess because they did it virtually, they they said they could pipe me in. Uh, I was grateful to do it. Lots of good people in Connecticut resisting it. Um, uh, the unfortunate news, and it's not totally unfortunate, but it is unfortunate, is that it was the bill was voted out of the public health committee. So that's not good. I was offering my testimony before the public health committee. Um, I guess it might have to go through judiciary as well, but, um, but they did pass it, but there was a lot of debate. Uh, and, and I was the first person to testify and it was, it was extraordinary. <laughs> it was just totally. Well, tell us about it. Totally when, what, extraordinary. when was it? When, when did you actually testify? Um, I don't remember the exact day, but it was about two weeks ago, maybe. Okay. So it's somewhere. It's, somewhere. It's March 10th uh, when we're recording this. So we're end of February. Yeah, end of February. Um, I was the first uh, person to testify, one of the legislators. There's apparently, I, I'm new to how all this works, but there was apparently a an hour and a half, 90 minutes for legislators to to testify and ask questions or to offer their thoughts. But sometimes they just simply give their time to someone else and in this case they gave it to me and uh and and i gave 10 you know no three minutes three minutes three minutes of reflections and the responses <laughs> took all of the 90 minutes of of what the legislators had so they basically my three minutes created the kind of discussion and questions and back and forth that basically there were no other legislators that got to you know, give their own testimony or give, you know, give it over to somebody else. They took the public testimony after that. And, and I led with something very similar to what I led the previous podcast with, which was our politics on this is all screwed up, right? We have, we have the left, which is supposedly the party of, um, you know, anti-violence, pro-disability, social justice, um, looking around for where individual autonomy of the powerful um, marginalizes the vulnerable, especially through social structures and laws, um, essentially being just total. And I said, you're, you're going to hear people on the left just arguing as libertarians, right? Like, keep the government out of this. No one should get between a, a, a patient and their doctor on this question. My body, my choice, my life, my death, 
all that individual autonomy stuff all day long. But that's not really left. That's nothing really progressive about that at all. In fact, that's very libertarian conservative. And um, if you really are going to focus on, you know, uh, in a deep blue state like Connecticut, social justice, if you're really going to focus on structures and how they affect the most vulnerable, you're going to not support this bill because as you'll hear from um, the disability rights groups, as you'll hear from others who feel, who feel pressure from a law, which basically says, you know, if you have a life like this, we can basically see how you'd want to kill yourself. <laughs> um, I went through the top five reasons uh, in, in Oregon, which has had assisted suicide for a while now, since the nineties and, and physical pain and suffering, which of course is, uh, you know, who, who you'd have to be a monster not to care about that is not even in the top five reasons why people in Oregon request assisted suicide. Number one reason, loss of autonomy course right and of course uh disability rights activists who say hey guess what i don't have autonomy the way that you're understanding it and are you telling me that these are good reasons you want to kill yourself if that's what you're saying then i'm not for this legislation um and there's of course a long history of 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 um, going all the way back to you know maybe the birth of what we think of as bioethics today with the nuremberg trials of being extremely concerned about um how all these policies affect the, the disabled so I did my, you know, the thing there, and it really caused a, a fantastic discussion, uh, and and really kind of just did it what I exactly what I hoped it would do, which is kind of blow up the kind of normal way that they started, <laughs> you know, going left versus right, and and there were people on the left who were like, I get this, I understand, I think this is problematic, and yet they didn't say it this way. I I have these really libertarian leanings, and I don't want the government involved with this, and this is coming from Democrats. Um, uh, but what, what I since learned is that it's not only though, you know, it's not only, um, well, I also talked about how, uh, this often comes from privileged whites. So you use the language of social justice there too, that privileged whites who want their autonomy, who want to be in control of everything, want to be in control of this too. And groups that don't have control over their lives the same way and who aren't as privileged and, and who are struggling in a culture, um, that discriminates them based on structurally and, 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 uh, and and also uh you know in, uh, individually with uh with, with because of the color of their skin are are against this so so african americans are some of the most skeptical of uh these kinds of initiatives and it was so interesting to see i mean my the people who prepped me for this basically said you know what it's going to be uh, white legislators from the very rich privileged parts of Connecticut that are most in favor of this. And sure enough, it was, um, uh, again, like throwing our, our categories and our, and our, and our political expectations totally, you know, into bizarro world here. Those are the folks who are arguing, um, for, for a libertarian approach. Whereas most, uh, large majorities of, of people of color really, really resist this. And then added onto the top of this, I was so interested to find out later, Canada, as you may know, is having a really um, interesting debate about trying to expand assisted right. suicide in that yep. country. Is it Bill and C-7 or something like C-7, that? C-7, yeah. Yep. Guess, who, guess which groups of Canadians are some of the strongest against it? First Nations peoples, Native Americans in Canada are, are some of the most strongest most strong uh, anti-euthanasia, anti-assisted suicide people. And, and and if you know anything about some of the struggles of those communities, especially with more traditional suicide, you know why. Um, one of the big discussions we had about um, during 
during that 90 minutes was about the connection between assisted suicide um, and suicide more generally, right? Like, does this, did the structures we create by legalizing assisted suicide push the culture more generally to be more permissive of, of suicide, which is obviously problematic. And First Nations peoples, Native Americans, um, believe very strongly that it does. And that's one reason why they're so against it. So you have, so you have this situation. I love this. You have disability rights activists, racial justice activists, and activists in favor of Native Americans all being against this. And yet it's the Democrats who are pushing it, right? It's the Democrats who are most strongly pushing this through. Um, and they pushed it through. They managed to get it out of this committee. Will it pass? It hasn't passed yet. Um, that's kind of a long answer, but, but, you can imagine the kind of interesting discussions that were had over those 90 minutes with all that out there. Uh, I would have loved to have been on it. I'm wondering, has the COVID-19 pandemic, has it had or will it likely have an effect on efforts to legalize assisted suicide? Do you think people will use this pandemic? I think, I think it will. And I think for now, the short term, very short term, is that it's probably pushed people against it. It's tough when there's been so much death, when there's been so much abandonment of people. It's really tough to be like the, the cheerleader for suicide, <laughs> you know, after all of that. Um, and I think like I'm not on the front lines in Connecticut or New York. I'm, 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 I'm like, supported support staff brought in once in a while but uh but the people who i talk to on the front lines are more are for this year cautiously optimistic that the kind of mood is not in favor of this however um i do think in the medium term or maybe even the longer short term if that's a way to talk about it there's a real danger here that once this all kind of settles down, but people still have a memory of the pandemic tattooed on their brains of like, wow, we, our elder care system sucks. Our dementia care system is worse. They're talking about, I think probably we're going to slouch towards robots, even take care of these populations. I don't, I can imagine somebody saying, I don't want robots taking care of me. People aren't having children, so there aren't family members around. Like Suddenly, people are going to do the math, I think, and say, yeah, I don't know if I have early onset dementia now that I really want to go through that, and are going to want to push for physician-assisted suicide. Um, and that, 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 I think, will take, I don't know how long, maybe not that long, but it'll take t some time for that to kind of cycle through the culture, I think. So unless we, we do push back strongly. I think this is a really important moment for us to push back strongly on the current elder care system, on the current dementia care system, and not slouch towards just putting a robot in the room or something. Um, but reform our, our, our whole way of doing this in a way that creates a culture of what Pope Francis and I and my own work have called a culture of encounter and hospitality rather than a kind of throwaway culture that just sees these, um, you know, these, these elder care, uh, uh, institutions as kind of way stations of death. You know, it's where you just put people to the side to kind of discard them to die. Uh, you know, in, unless we take care of that, which we should take care of anyway, even if, even if physician assisted suicide wasn't, you know, at our doorstep of so many States, we should be doing this anyway. But, right. but yeah. in, it, this is yet another reason why we need to, really reform these these structures and systems.
How does palliative care and good palliative care and hospice play into this this whole equation as well? Absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. And that that fits very well with the um, noting that it's uh, you know, physical pain and suffering isn't a top five reason right. for why people request it in, in Oregon. Right. Uh, we have to make, I mean, God bless Brittany Maynard. I hope wherever she is now, she's okay. The, the stories that we have about people who get horrific uh, diagnoses and face a, a very worrisome future, um, we have to be able to say, we will take care of your physical pain and suffering. You know, you will have access to the best technology available to control your pain and suffering. And we will value your life and we will show, we will suffer with you. We will show compassion with you and for you. And we won't leave your side and we won't certainly won't give your care over to robots. And we will, and we will pay the people who are taking care of you well. And we will, change the the uh, system um which which puts palliative care and elder care and dementia care it's sort of close to the bottom of the you know the healthcare hierarchy of whatever <laughs> uh but but yeah palliative care has got to be a central part of of what that is and and to be honest like this this really again intersects if i can use that term in a what i hope is a positive way this intersects very nicely with racial justice because as you know, part of the reason why, I mean, it's not just euthanasia that communities of color are disproportionately skeptical of. They're also disproportionately skeptical of even a hospice, right? right. Something that yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, a, a, lot of, a lot of, you know, white folks pr- with privilege would say, what, you know, what are you talking about? This is like one of the great gifts. Well, it doesn't take, you know, a history major to know some of the, some of the things that went down in, in, in these communities at the end of life. And, um, and there's reasons for skepticism. There's good reasons for skepticism in these communities about about uh, palliative care, which for many just are virtually indistinguishable from euthanasia or something close to something akin to it. So that's another. It's not just having access. It's building trust within communities that have been historically distrustful. And that that again, these connections between social justice and more traditional issues of bioethics are just so there, so prominent. So it's just like there for the taking if we want it and the connections you know almost make themselves and these really are pro-life issues at totally. the core totally yeah. so you danced around this a little bit in your Uh-oh. in your answer previously but i'm going to try to pin you down a bit so Uh-oh. i always ask guests to look in their crystal ball so i'm going to ask you to look in your in the, in the charlie camosi crystal ball and look 10 years in the future 20 years in the future however however far your your clairvoyant stare can can go <laughs> But um, looking at where do you think 10 years from now, 20 years from now, whatever it may be, where are we going to be in the U.S. with regard to assisted suicide and euthanasia? We see, we see it – we see it – it has just blown up so quickly in Canada. We see it expanding in Europe. We see it expanding slowly in South America, Australia. Um, I think a third state is – I think Tasmania – is voting on it, and it it, it, it just kind of came out of committee, or, or no, the lower uh, as we speak today, the uh, lower parliament in uh, lower house of parliament in Tasmania has legalized it. You see these efforts all over the world, and you you see the movement coming. Where are we ten years, twenty years from now in the U.S.? I'm going to try to not continue to dance around it, but I, <laughs> but 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 I am going to give a conditional 
kind of answer. If um, we continue on our basically our current politics now, I think it's in ten years, uh, ten to fifteen years, physician assisted suicide will be legal in all fifty states. Will it be a federal law, or will it be? In, will it stay on the level of individual states? I think the way the court is currently constituted, they probably wouldn't. Uh, well, I guess that, I mean, so if it's a federal law, it might come from the Supreme Court. There might be some ruling that says this is part of the penumbra. Of well, they've already, they are, it was the Glucksburg case. So they've already said that there isn't a right to it. I'm just, I'm talking, I'm not talking a, a, a court decision, but I'm talking federal legislation. Oh, so like you the mean US legislation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. My, I was no, 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 no. That's, um, yeah. Uh, well, if uh, if they get rid of the filibuster, <laughs> which Joe Manchin seems to be a one man gang trying to hold hold on to it at least in some way, uh, right now, um, I think probably we won't have uh, a federal law. Uh, but again, if we're looking if we're looking ten to fifteen years, Joe Manchin won't be there. Who knows what happens to the filibuster? Um, uh, but but here's here's my broader point about. I mean, so I guess, yeah, if I guess it could be a federal law or a state law, let me say that in 10 to 15 years, either through state legislatures or the federal government, I would bet we, if, if the politics basically stay the same as they are right now, broadly speaking, um, there will be legal assisted suicide in all 50 states. Now, the supposition there, though, is that we still we continue to have this politics which though we imagine ourselves as being so utterly polarized and, you know, against each other. But in reality, there is this kind of agreement about, especially with powerful people, privileged people, that autonomy reigns, right? Government is something to be suspicious of. Individuals need to exert themselves and, and, and uh, need to be empowered without any concern about justice questions, you know, don't judge other people's decisions. These are these are values which actually transcend the right-left divide right now. If we can have a politics which calls that out consistently across a range of issues, right, which says, you know, that thing that you call a free choice, it actually isn't. And here are a lot of structural questions that need to be asked. And here are the vulnerable populations that allowing the powerful to have the free choice but not the vulnerable actually produce. If we could do that with regard to, as we've said already, you know, abortion, for instance, euthanasia is a big part of that discussion as well. And so if we can, if we can have a politics which genuinely wrestles with how choice functions, with how autonomy functions, with who gets left out, with the unintended consequences of this, um, I really think there could be. I mean, this is one reason I think, again, these blue states now have resisted for so long. I think they'll buckle under to autonomy and freedom and choice and government state of my life, but it, uh, given the power structures now, but if we, if this current political realignment underway right now actually produces the kind of political power and structures, which defend the vulnerable from those kinds of autonomy first autonomy for the powerful government stay out of the situation, then I think we can make the kind of choice, which gives a coalition of, racial justice activists, disability rights activists, pro-life Christians and Catholics and religious people, and just those in general who are willing to look around for who's hurt by the choices of the powerful, then I think we can resist it. And and there is some evidence. That's why I'm kind of hedging my bets. Sorry. There's some evidence that we could go either way, right? There's some evidence that we could go either way. And um, 
I don't really know which way we'll go. I hope we go the, the, the latter way. Yeah, I hope so too. Well, speaking of resistance, I'm going to change gears again and, and go to your last book, which was titled Resisting the Throwaway Culture. So I was wondering, Charlie, if you could tell us about this book. Um, what do you want your readers to to take away from it? Well, I guess I've, I mean, I told my story at the beginning of the last podcast. I've been pro-life as long as I've understood what abortion was since Sister Celeste back at St. John the Baptist High School in Paris Township, Wisconsin, like taught us what abortion was. I've just always been against it. But I really had my pro-life vision um, shaped by Pope Francis and his vision of throwaway culture though I don't think he explicitly uses it as a pro-life vision was just like monumental in my own thinking for, for my own thinking. And, and uh, one of the things that I saw was, um, you know, I love John Paul II, St. John Paul II and culture of death helps describe a big part of what's going on in so many things that, you and the center and I and others are interested in, in resisting, but, but there's another, if you were going to make that connection between the <laughs> second, I mean, it's, it's a very obvious one, but it was, I was, I was hoping you were going to make it. And, and don't get me wrong. There are like, just again, straight up, no chaser killings of the vulnerable that are, that are just clearly part of a culture of death. And, and St. John Paul II was right to, to call it that. But, there's a, there's at least as as important a part of what we're resisting that isn't really about doesn't certainly doesn't understand itself at all about as killing it's more like hiding or pushing to the side right discarding not taking account of and just kind of letting happen whatever happens right you know you just you send back the uh the immigrant who wants asylum in this country. And even if, if it's a war torn area where they're marked for death, that's not your concern, right? You just send them back because they don't belong here because they're illegal. You, uh, you just send the COVID positive patients back to the nursing homes because you got a problem that you're trying to solve here. And you know, the, these, these populations don't really matter that much anyway, right? They're throwaway populations. So you just figure it out later. You just push it to the side. You try not to think about it. Um, and what, what I found so interesting was, is how language is often used to do precisely this. So a lot of what's, what happens in abortion with my students and with others is they haven't really thought through the question. They've, the culture, the throwaway culture has helped them push it off to the side where they're not actually confronted with it at all. They're not arguing for the killing of a fetus. That's not what they're arguing for. Anybody has spent, you know, 10 minutes talking to somebody, just a kind of random person that's in favor of abortion rights knows this already. No one is arguing for the killing even of a fetus, even if they're making very few are making some kind of argument about personhood either, even though I've spent a lot of time making arguments about personhood. And, uh, what, what I've discovered is that throwaway culture and many of, I'm not the first one to, to come up with this, but throwaway culture helps hide the reality for the culture and for individuals and language within the throwaway culture does that especially well, not well objectively, but it hides, it hides it well. So one of the debates, for instance, over the heartbeat bills, right, which is which are definitely in service of prenatal justice, is it's been so interesting to hear the some of the best educated people on prenatal biology say, well, you know, it's not really a heartbeat; it's like a cardiac pole vibration. 
<laughs> Cardiac pull vibration. It's a four-chambered heart pumping blood unidirectionally. Now, what is that? If it's got four chambers, it's pumping blood. That's a heart. It's a prenatal heart. It's a heart. It's not a cardiac pull. What's going on when somebody who's head of OBGYN at the University of San Francisco University call it? What's going on when somebody that educated calls it a cardiac pull vibration? Well, they're using language to dehumanize, to hide the reality of what's actually going on here. And we do this all the time. I mean, even even I, I, I get into some arguments with fellow pro-lifers about this, but I don't even really think we should be using the term fetus. I, I think the term fetus itself is part of throwaway culture because we never talk about fetus to describe the prenatal child, except in two cases, a biology class or abortion. <laughs> Every other time we talk about a baby or a child, right? Nobody ever heard of a fetus bump or a <laughs> fetus shower or a... <laughs> No one who's, you know, <laughs> who's been in a marriage where, 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 where there's a pregnancy, you know, has ever heard honey, honey, come quick. The fetus is kicking. <laughs> no, one, no one talks like this. They talk like it in two cases. Again, in a, when, when we're using antiseptic language in a biology class to kind of use, you know, more biologically centered terms or an abortion where the, the, the explicit use of the term is about trying to to use language to hide the reality of what's going on here. And that is part of a culture of death because it permits death, but it's I think it's better talked about as a throwaway culture because what what the language does is it kind of it kind of puts this entity in a space in a in a place where we're more comfortable with not paying attention, not throwing away. Not again, this is one use one reason I use the term prenatal justice to to draw to mind what we owe this population to put a you know, a, a spotlight on the population. And, and the book talks about, you know, abortion, obviously talks about euthanasia, talks about immigration, talks, uh, talks also about God's gift, um, of the world to us, right. Our nature and, and our ecology. And, um, and it also talks about hookup culture. I think one of the, one of the things that hookup culture is so pernicious, uh, with regard to is how it turns people into things. And we use language to turn, people into sexual objects. Um, and that's the ultimate part of throwaway culture, right? It turns people into things that can then be discarded. So whether it's your hookup partner or a prenatal child or someone who's in a persistent vegetative state, so-called um, throwaway culture uses language and other, other mechanisms of essentially coloring our cultural psychology in ways, which, which help us, which push us to think of people as things that can then be discarded. And, and to, I guess that's that's more nuanced, I think, than or it's, it's trying to describe something else beyond just a culture of death. And and the book is trying to make the case about that more broadly. Yeah, yeah. has the COVID nineteen pandemic unmasked this throwaway culture? Has it? What what has been the effect of the pandemic on this understanding? Yeah, I think absolutely it has. In in fact, I was super embarrassed that I didn't. Um, I mean, there's whenever you write a book, there's you have to cut stuff. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> people aren't going to read the book. But because um, I found that people generally don't read a lot of books anyway, and if you make it really long, they they won't read it even more. But, uh, uh, kind of uh, like a homily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, but I really, if I had to do it over again, I, uh, I you know the book was published in 2019. I would I would definitely put I would have a whole chapter on elder care and nursing homes as a classic throwaway um, population for reasons I've already described and we've already talked about. I mean, it's 
the I really can't wait for the um, serious books that are going to be written about who was involved in the decision making process to put COVID positive patients in nursing homes. I'm I'm like somewhere close to ninety nine percent sure it was a, a medical advisor who who is steeped in throwaway culture and and couldn't couldn't think about the population that they were putting at, at huge risk in any other way than just this throwaway population. And, and in some ways I can't blame them because that that's the way we've kind of grown up. We have this, this vague sense that there are many thousands, even millions of people that we just kind of put away in way stations of death. We don't really think about, we don't pay the people taking care of them well at all. They don't get um, the kind of care that even, you know, very basic care that we think everyone deserves. Um, and and then we and then what was worse you know what's worse during the lockdown they were the ones that got hurt worst of all they were the ones not only that that got covid positive patients thrown into their spaces uh, uh, but then but then also were were so hurt by the lockdowns and just so desperately lonely and and, and even uh, and, and and not and not just lonely from a standpoint of there weren't enough people but just like i i don't know if you saw this terrible story just awful story of um, i think it was in the catholic herald recently uh, um, a woman uh, had her mother in a nursing home and it was a pretty good one she, she said and uh, <laughs> and uh, the her mom who's in the nursing home had a tendency to wander as a lot of people with dementia do and somehow got outside in, in very cold weather and three um, three shifts missed her somehow and she froze to death outside. And it's just like almost too terrible to think about. What, <laughs> what, what, um, what institutions, what structures have we created where this population can be treated this way? What, what, what are we doing? I mean, this, this is a throwaway population. This is throwaway culture at work in very dramatic ways. And I think if there's one good thing again silver lining to all this it's that there has been a spotlight shown on this in a way um that i hope we can finally take a look at and say you know whatever we're doing now we have to fundamentally change it and, and do a much better job yeah huh again sobering sobering information all right let's change gears once again sure. uh you've got uh you're just you're just a prolific writer here. You got you got another book coming out. Um, I don't know where you find time to do this stuff, but uh, but anyway, I, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll blame it on the, the life of a professor. Right? Yes, well, yeah. Anyway, I have, I, I, we we were talking earlier. I have my my sabbatical next year coming up, and I'll be I'll be working on another book during. Oh this my time. god, I'm so jealous. I need a sabbatical. I, I I got out of higher education before I ever took a sabbatical, and I I was like, oh oh well. I don't think uh, I don't think there's be any sabbaticals at the NCBC, but uh, but, <laughs> but actually no. Uh, but anyway, so you do have a new book coming out uh, in the next few months, and it's it's titled and, and let me know if I have this correct: "Losing Our Dignity: How Secularized Medicine Is Undermining Fundamental Human Equality." That's the correct title. That's right. That's right. All right. So why are you writing this book, and what's your what's your central thesis in it? Well, um, without naming that title i've always this is the book i started um circulating around for for people to review it and give me their feedback just before the pandemic hit and it's coming out this july my basic thesis is 
um, something I've kind of already stated, but uh, it's that the secularization of medicine and medical ethics has left the cupboard bare in terms of moral resources to talk about fundamental human equality. So um, fundamental human equality comes from us sharing a nature that has been created in the image and likeness of God. And also in a related story, um, us sharing the common nature with Christ, with who, who is our, um, you know, we're, we all are siblings through Christ. All human beings are. Uh, that I don't need to tell you is going away in the powers um, that be when it comes to medicine and medical ethics. And it's oh, actually absolutely. shockingly um, absent in medical ethics. I, I would uh, say even in Catholic healthcare ethics. Yeah. Well, you know more about that than I do, but um, <laughs> I, I, to the extent I know anything about that, I agree with you. Um, and so that's deeply frustrating mm -hmm. on so many levels. Um, but it's, frustrating at maybe a fundamental level because again we, if we look around to find resources what is this thing i mean i opened the book by saying think about the range of diversity of the kinds of human beings in your life right like you have a cousin with down syndrome or a neighbor up the street who has um uh, ptsd after serving in iraq or um you know, do you have uh, a friend who's, who's struggling in a coma or something like that? Like, what is this, you know, given all this, especially neurodiversity, um, what is this, what is it that makes us all equal again? And, and sharing a nature in common that's dignified by being made in the image and likeness of God has been the, what the answer the West has given and is actually at the source of why we even talk about universal human rights at all. Uh, that's not there anymore in medicine and medical ethics, at least not in the powers that be. And we've seen the results of that. So um, my book opens with the introduction and first chapter essentially making the case of the shift over time. I mean, I don't need to tell you it was theologians were the first bioethicists actually and um, kind of led the field for a while. Now now we even struggle to get, I mean, I, I'm a pretty well-published um, academic in these questions. I, I, if, if I, on these issues, I... I can't even really get a theologically oriented paper accepted at the American Society of Bioethics and Humanities annual conference because it's just they don't want those kinds of uh, of, of papers. So um, you look around and you say, well, you know, it makes sense that we have these populations like Jahai McMath who uh, got her period and 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 was going into adolescence but was also considered dead by the state of california at the time right because she had a she was so-called brain dead or terry shivo or others where one of one of the things that i really get into in the book is that in the chapter on so-called persistent vegetative state which people aren't using anymore thank god um, or many are not using is is how much work people like joe fins and others have done to show that people in this so-called state actually benefit from therapies and and you can actually coax people um, into uh, some kind of consciousness sometimes if you put the right therapeutic interventions in place uh, but there's another example of some of a, a group of human beings that have been denied fundamental human equality I, I think abortion it's pretty clear what's happened and then I have a chapter on um, Alfie Evans uh, and, and toddlers with neurodegenerative disease connected with Charlie Gard and others 
And then I have the, the section on that I've talked about already on dementia and, and, and other disability. So the book is essentially making this case that we've been on this trajectory for a while now, and it's only going to get worse. And the next shoe to drop will be people with dementia. And, and this, this number, um, the number of people with dementia is just going to grow exponentially, absolutely exponentially. It's not just because we're living longer and therefore more people get dementia, but for something about our lifestyle, we're not exactly sure. Um, people, more and more people are getting dementia at, at higher levels. So I think it's going to be uh, double every 20 years, numbers of people with dementia. And we already can't care for our dementia population. So people with dementia. So it's it's a real serious problem. And I, I kind of end the book by by thinking about what, what we might be able to do in response. Yeah. Wow. Those numbers are incredible and sobering. And light of that, what do you, what do you think we as a church can do to create a genuine say culture of encounter for those with dementia or really any of the other the patients who are minimally conscious and, and others as well? I know we're speaking about dementia, but there's a, it, it, it can be broader as well. How do, how do we as a church create a culture of encounter? for for these people and their family members loved ones how does the church be church well first it's an intellectual project i think we need to engage even though it's frustrating and difficult we need to find a way to build um uh, I'm, I'm writing the book for a press called new city press which is the press of the focolare which are which a catholic apostolate which is interested in dialogue and focusing on unity across difference, uh, kind of Trinitarian unity. And, uh, and so I finished, I mean, the, the final chapter of the book is basically like, how do we re-engage medicine and, and medical ethics in a way that we can build a dialogue on these questions? Because if uh, that's, that's, we have to try, it might, it might seem like a, again, a heavy lift or like a kind of Pollyannish hope, but like, I think we at least have to try because right. I do think we're at this stage where we're still not quite ready as a culture to say this whole other population doesn't matter quite the same as others. Um, but we have, and with that still being the case, if that is still the case, there's at least a reasonable chance we could say, you know why um, somebody with dementia counts the same as you or me. It's the same reason why a prenatal child counts the same as you or me. It's the same reason why Terry Shiavo counts as you or me. It's the same reason why Jahi McMath, Jahi McMath counts the same as you or me. It's the same reason why Alfie Evans counts the same as you or me. And then, and then we can, if we can have that conversation, maybe we can help change the culture that way, but not be naive. I, I also then conclude the book by saying, you know, there's a chance that that's not going to work. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, it, and we as church need to be prepared for that. Like if that, if that doesn't work, we need to step up. Um, we need to step up anyway, but it would be better if we had, you know, quote unquote, the world's help, but, but we need to step up, uh, especially if the world does not. And, What's so interesting is, um, I focus a little bit on this at the beginning of the book, is there are good um, scholars of the early church who said, you know what was a big reason for why the early church went from this kind of nothing marginalized movement to being the official religion of the empire? It was because in part of how Christians reacted to pandemics. So there were these massive pandemics with just even worse death than we've had in ours and Apparently, according to these scholars, like the early Christians really responded with the kind of love you would hope Christians would respond with and self 
self disregarding love, right? Like other, totally other centered self, almost self denying love, right? Putting your whole life at just tremendous risk. And, um, I'm not a scholar of this, you know, of, I'm not a historian or a scholar of this era for sure, but I guess part of the evidence was the number of, um, gravestones that were identified as Christians at be like immediately after pandemics just went up very seriously. Um, as, so, so, and there, there were other reasons too that I'm, you know, I'm not a historian, but we've, I don't think we've done all that well actually as church during this pandemic. I don't think, I don't think we've shown the colors that we've shown in our past and, and maybe this could be one of those ways. So if, if, if we take the lead again on things I've, I've talked about already, like creating new institutions, um, and here's one, how about we help our fellow, uh, our fellow uh, Christians, but also our, our neighbors take care of their loved ones at home. Right. Uh, th- this, I mean, we're, we claim to be pro family and in many cases we are, but here's one place where we could be totally pro family in, in, in at both a structural level and at the level of church um, to just to make space for, for, for people not to be thrown into nursing homes, but stay in the homes of their families and, 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 and create a interconnected system of support uh, for people who are working or who don't have the necessary expertise or can't be around for various reasons. Um, if church can be church that way, that's to me sounds exactly like the kind of thing um, that the early church did in response to the pandemics, right? That, that, that kind of total self emptying, total gift to others in community, right? Um, that kind of Christ centered love is just, and then, and this would not be the reason to do it, but I, but I also wonder if this wouldn't also be, kind of mutually reinforcing as a, as a kind of evangelical witness to the culture too. Like if, if people see Christians acting like Christians, uh, uh, you know, that's a, (laughs) that would be nice. That would be nice. That would be a very attractive thing, right? Like, you know, if people, wow, these people totally rearrange their lives to take care of this person whose memory is fading and, and they didn't just, put them in a way station of death and, and keep them medicated until they die. They, they made, they totally reoriented their lives to, to, to create a culture of encounter to, to welcome this person who, who incidentally were taught in Matthew 25 bears the face of Christ, right? The, the, these most marginalized of, of populations bear the face of Christ in a special way. Yeah. So you've been talking about kind of the role of, of individual Christians. I'm wondering what's the role of, systems or institutions, particularly Catholic healthcare systems or institutions, what role do they play in reestablishing a true respect for human dignity in medicine? Well, there, I think, I mean, there are two, there's a general answer to that question. There's a specific answer in, in relation to that particular problem. So the specific question I think is, um, we need to, to retool our, our Catholic healthcare systems to meet this problem, which everyone knows is coming, but we're not ready for. I mean, it's already here in some ways and we're, and we're not ready for it now. And we certainly won't be ready for it in 20 years if we don't change. So Catholic healthcare system is institutions I think need to lead when it comes to saying we are not going to slouch toward assisted suicide. We are not going to slouch towards robots. We are going to give the love of Christ to these individuals who bear the, the, the face of Christ in a special way. But that's as, as important as that issue is and the literally millions and millions of lives at stake um, you know, being just, I mean, unimaginably important. It's still only one 
example, right? Um, more generally, Catholic healthcare system as institutions need to realize that this all comes from the deposit of faith. That the faith given to us, you know, from the apostles, from you know, from Jesus through the apostles and the apostolic memory of the church is absolutely essential for what we're doing. I mean, it's it is because we see the face of Christ in the least among us that we do what we do, right? And if it's not that, something has gone really wrong. And uh and and there's a reason why, as I go through in my book, you know, the the early church and the church of the Middle Ages cared so much about healthcare. Um because it was considered to be just like the paradigmatic example of 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 other centered love, right? Um, the good the story of the Good Samaritan is just so perfect uh, for thinking about this in particular. And and as you know, a lot, a lot of people use this image of Jesus as the great physician. He spent so much of his ministry um, caring about the sick, both physically and spiritually sick. Now, you know how that actually manifests itself in the world can be complicated, right? It's not the same as it is in the United States, as it is in China, as it is in uh, Brazil. But um, but if we can start there, if we start with the foundation, then we're going to end up in a much better place than if we start with, again, the kind of secularized um, power structures. If, we, if, we, if we're all just trying to fit into that, then, then not only will we rightly not deserve the, the word Catholic, but but we'll miss something distinctive and unique about how we think about human dignity and, and making sure we aren't missing the vulnerable that our throwaway culture tends to hide away and help us not think about. Yeah. I uh, just, again, listening to you, a lot of the, the, the things that you're talking about are issues that we, we deal with on a very practical level here at the NCBC. And I'm, I'm wondering when is uh, losing our dignity going to come out? Because I want to read it. <laughs> it's coming out this july so it's it's it i think review copies will be sent out in in june but the formal publication date is i think july 15th sounds good so so be looking for that charlie what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today well um i guess i can say from personal experience um you know you never know where god is going to call you to be <laughs> uh Amen. I can, I, I can <laughs> you, attest to you've that. Lived that. I've lived that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, like, oh yes. I've lived that. I've, uh, even though I am doing what I loved, it wasn't what I imagined <laughs> doing. I would love. Amen. But, um, my, I tell my undergraduates who are just so like a hundred percent convinced they're going to be what they want to be. Now <laughs> <their still alive. laughs> you know, philosophy was my fun major. I majored in, um, in communications, uh, film and television, because I wanted to be a sports center anchor. That's was, that was, what, that was what my <laughs> career path was going to be. I was going to be on ESPN, right? You got the voice for it. <laughs> I was actually that guy who would press record on his old boom box and like try to do play by play <laughs> of the games I was watching on TV to, to, to prepare for my future career. Well, and you know, I'm a theologian for crying out loud. So like God puts us in places, directs us to places that we can't possibly predict. And, in some ways we just need to get out of our own heads. And I, I'm saying this in, in part to remind myself of this, cause I'm not, I'm not good at this. Sometimes God has a way of just pushing me where I don't want to go, but you know, this, this desire to plan and control and, you know, autonomy and asserting yourself and your will is very much about what our culture is about right now. But if we can just say, here I am, Lord, I come to do your will more often and listen, put the smartphone down, put the, turn the TV off. 
close the laptop and just be quiet and listen, you know, God, God will, God will tell us where we need to go. Awesome. And again, a big amen on that. Charlie Camosi, thank you for joining us on Bioethics On Air today. My pleasure. Hope to see you again. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics On Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service, You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.